Shachtan, an Indo Askelige. Time in Mon Irok the Yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echo. Vien Talam again Omgrev, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Yeah, having my head shoved into the uh, steps of the Ulster Bank in Ranla, called but of a gun put into the back of your skull, that's a moment where you go, okay, yeah, I think this one's up. How does a high-flying academic become one of Ireland's most prolific bank robbers? What I would see is the most important part of this still lies open. I'm Not Here to Hurt You, a brand new series from the award-winning team behind the Indo Daily. That November day, that's where it all, all begins. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Do you have to be an asshole to be a top tech founder? Last week, I wrote a column in the Sunday Independent outlining why Elon Musk, genius and inspiration as he is, is currently acting like an asshole. But do you have to be a bit of a bully to succeed in tech? Do you have to meet out abuse like Steve Jobs to achieve like Steve Jobs? Or can you be a nice guy like a Collison and still get all the way to the top? Connor Neal is an entrepreneur and professor at one of the world's top business schools, the Graduate Business School of the University of Navarra, IESE, in Barcelona. He's also president of Vistage in Spain, which describes itself as the world's leading CEO organization. Connor, you have a degree in psychology and you founded six companies, the best of which is probably a taxi jet. From your perspective, do you have to have a bit of the devil in you to be a top achieving tech entrepreneur? Well, one of my mentors and the reason that I get to teach in the IESC Business School was Professor Brian Leggett. And, you know, 10 years ago, Brian was clearing out his office. He was retiring after a successful career as a professor, 50 years studying leadership. And I remember coming up the stairs to visit him in his room to sort of say thank you for what he had been in my life. And I remember him sat behind his desk looking at me and he says, Connor, I've been studying leadership for 50 years, written cases, written books, comes down to this. Leadership is vision plus bullying. Mm. Vision alone is idealism. Bullying alone is bullying. It's only when you bring the two together that you really create things that no one could have created without the vision and without that assertive personality. So I think you know, the, the question whether you're nice or not, I think you'll be hard on people in a nice way and you can be hard on people in a cruel way. But there is a degree to which a leader needs to help people face challenges that they wouldn't really decide to face alone. Hmm. And I think whereas you know, Steve Jobs was hard on people, he helped them achieve things they would never have achieved without that pressure. And there's the saying that a diamond is a piece of coal that has been under pressure for millions of years. 
So to a degree, the leader of any organization, you, you can be a leader that waits for the environment to put the pressure on your people, or you can be the type of leader that, that helps your people get ready for whatever is coming in the environment. So I think there is a degree to which you know, just a nice future is not enough to get people to make disciplined action and make important steps forward. Mm. There must be a fine line, though, because I'm looking at what Elon Musk is doing at the moment. And for context here, and I don't even need to say this, Elon Musk is one of the world's greatest entrepreneurs. He has single-handedly turned around industries that nobody else could do, electric cars, commercial space rocket uh, uh, business. Um, he's trying to bore tunnels at the moment in the US. He has a company called Neuralink, which is supposed to, to establish an interface between your brain and other things. And yet some of the things he is doing publicly to his own future executives, if he closes the deal on Twitter, comes across very, very poorly. And to the rest of us looking on who have not achieved what Elon Musk has achieved and will never achieve what Elon Musk has achieved, we're trying to figure out whether this is just part of the package, you know? I think, you know, I... I have been an entrepreneur for 20 years. And I think at the beginning, a somewhat accidental entrepreneur. I didn't intend to be an entrepreneur. And perhaps the reasons I got into it at the beginning were somewhat wrong. I thought I was creating freedom. And a couple of years after starting my first business, I realized I was more trapped and stuck than I ever had been as someone receiving a salary. But my, my definition that I would share with people of what is an entrepreneur an entrepreneur is someone who has more ideas than resources. So anyone who has more ideas than the resources they currently control in, in some ways is an entrepreneur. And what Elon Musk is, is an amazing example of someone who clearly has dreams that go far beyond both his current resources and the current resources of the planet. That for many of his dreams to become true, not only do we need to get more out of the people in his teams, but we also need to push science and push things forward. And, you know, many times in the past, the greatest scientific innovation has come in times of war, because war puts enormous pressure on scientists to, to, to keep the speed of things. And I think we need people like Elon Musk that, that mean that we're moving forward the frontiers of science without a war, without a pressure, because he has a dream that is so compelling. And to me, there's a, a video that went around the internet of, of Elon Musk where he was talking about, you know, why is he going to space? And he said, as a kid growing up, he had dreams. He remembered you know, dreaming about being an astronaut. And you know, we live at a time when kids don't dream the way we dreamt you know, 30 years ago. We don't dream of doing amazing things. We're kind of you know, so stuck in social media that we've forgotten to, to dream these big dreams. And what we dream Elon about Musk being influencers or TikTok stars. Is that what you're going to say? Well, they didn't, you know, to me, I, I think, you know, Tony Hawk was the influencer when I was a kid. It was skateboarder, but you, you didn't, I didn't even know what he looked like. Um, so, you know, there, I think, you know, a great service that Elon Musk is doing is allowing us to dream that the future could be bigger, better than it is today. Mm. This question of how he goes about it. And it's a difficult thing to be a leader, whether it's in politics, in government, as a business leader, because people judge you with a much closer lens than they do themselves. 
And whether you're the <clears throat> president of a government, the CEO of a company, really you're still a human being. And Elon Musk is, is a human being. And in a way, he's, he's just a grown-up adolescent that has never left behind a bit of adolescence. So we're judging him as if he should be this, <clears throat> what, a hundred-year-old, super-wise, Buddhist, absolutely at peace. And, and I think you know, there's a bit, you, I don't know which company had it, move fast and break things. That Facebook has that. Facebook, uh, yeah. yeah, move fast and break things. You know, in a way, when you're exploring territory that you've never done before, and for Elon Musk, he built, he was part of PayPal. He didn't go on to build another financial services company. He went on to do new things that he'd not done before. And I think when you're doing something new that you've not done before, on the one hand, you're not going to be good at it. Uh, you know, Elon Musk was not born as the hereditary ruler of a nation where he was schooled from the age of five and six on how to do protocol and what you can speak about and what you cannot speak about. Although I think you know, if you look at some of the royal families around the world, that even that doesn't work too well. And you know, never before in human history has has it been so easy for one person to to spread their words, get a message out to so many people. Mm. I think you know, both Elon Musk and any other human has not figured out how to use this voice in a way that that is both positive in terms of helping you achieve important things but also not in some way adolescent and damaging. I wonder, is it because, or is it related to the era we're in of the disruptor? So it seemed to me that up until the 60s and 70s, in the tech industry anyway, there was quite a civilized atmosphere. You know, feel free, listeners, if you have a different view to, to at me on that. But And then Steve Jobs came along in the late 70s. And he was a disruptor and what he was doing and the way he was taking on the industry at the time, it almost seemed that he had to have those personality traits to go back to your original thesis of uh, a vision and a tendency to bully. And it seemed that he set a certain template from then on in that has sought to be replicated sometimes well, sometimes badly. Um, Elizabeth Holmes is another one that comes to mind in recent years. Obviously, the Theranos uh, founder, uh, disgraced Theranos founder, who tried to adopt many of those same traits, at least superficially, but it all fell completely uh, flat for her. I think you know, even before Steve Jobs, you had Gordon Moore at Intel, who I think was the original hard-driving visionary founder, and you know. Moore's law that the number of semiconductors on a chip would double every I don't know, year and a half or every two years. You know, he didn't wait for the environment to demand it. He, as the leader, imposed that on the company, on Intel, and he drove it from the inside. But did he send letters out to all of his colleagues, like, you know, piling on one of his, uh, his executive colleagues while he was doing it? That's the question. Was he a, was he a, a former day Elon Musk? Well, perhaps that conversation happened in a bar where his three good mates were listening. You know, in a way, what we're hearing from Elon Musk is, is what you, know, you or I would share in the pub after work, our frustrations, our joys, a stupid joke. And, and for us, it's like a flippant comment that our friends understand. For Elon Musk, I guess he does stick it on Twitter. He does know he has however many million 
followers. But you know, I don't think we've understood quite what this degree to which one individual can communicate with so many people can be. Yeah, it's. Uh, I interviewed a guy this week called Brian Humphreys, who is the CEO of a company called Cognizant, which is a giant uh, tech outsourcing firm. They do. They used to do a lot of the content moderation for Facebook. They now do contract uh, contract work for Google, for example, in Dublin. And that company has 300,000 employees, most of which are in India. And he sometimes has to attempt to do all hands meetings. Um, he's a Dublin guy. Um, but the idea of communication with staff and how do you motivate people and how do you get them to work? How do you get them to do their best work without becoming... Uh, a bit of a tyrant. I always think of Patrick and John Collison as potentially the exception to this rule. I've met them several times, interviewed them. I, I've searched and searched, and I can't find anybody yet who has a bad word really to say about them or their temperament. I'm just wondering, do you think we might actually be seeing in the Collisons um, an exception to the rule that you have to sometimes, you know, be a bit of a tyrant or or be a little bit of a bully. Well, I think I, I go back to you can be challenging without being nasty. Mm. And in a way, in a loving relationship, it's not just that you're kind and caring. You're also going to challenge someone to be who they could be. Mm. And, and I guess it's a very fine line between challenging someone and being a nasty thing, being clumsy, or challenging someone and they don't enjoy it, but they can see that you're asking them to step up, to reach higher. And, and I think you know, if I look back and think the best teacher I had at school, uh, I grew up in Dublin, but at the age of 14, my father's job moved to Chicago. And, and I hated every bit of the move, but I met one teacher who transformed my life. And Mr. Matz was a biology teacher. And he started the very first lesson of biology, group of 14-year-olds, and held up the textbook. And he said, how much is this book worth? Group of 14-year-olds, silence. Finally, someone puts their hand up and says, $32. He said, at the end of this year, if you've learned everything in this book, you're worth $32 more. That's not what this course is about. If at the end of this year, you've become curious about life, about how trees and animals and all the systems of life interact, you're worth infinitely more. That's what this course is about. And to one degree, he didn't let me coast. He could see when I got an A, but I was coasting. And it mattered more to him how much I was putting myself in than the grade I was getting. And I'd never had a teacher like this before. Mm. Every other teacher as long as I was getting the grades, didn't worry about whether I was capable of more or less or how I went about it. Mr. Matz did not let me coast, did not let me just tick along doing what was okay for the grade and challenged me to, to take a step back and, and, and think who I wanted to be. And I remember on one test, uh, we, we did the homework, and at the time, my father had one of the first computers at home. And instead of doing, you know, this is 1986, and uh, I did the homework on a computer. I printed out a graph, and I handed it in. You know, everyone else was handwritten. And I did it because I kind of cared about the, 
the subject and I cared about investigating it. And when I got this work back, Mr. Matz had given me 11 out of 10 on the piece of work, which just blew my mind as an Irish 14 year old. Like schools have A's, B's, C's and D's and you know what it takes to get an A and that's it. Uh, and I remember as a 14 year old in Chicago, just thinking 11 out of 10, that's a mistake. There's, there's no such thing as 11 out of 10. And it took me a few days to get the, the courage to go up and, and challenge the teacher. You know, in Ireland, when I was growing, you didn't go and challenge the teacher that they had made a mistake. But I went up and I said, Mr. Matz, I think you've made a mistake. There was only 10 points. And he said, 10 was for the best I had imagined. You went better. You deserve 11. And to this day, this idea that an A is an arbitrary standard. And you know, for Adrian, there's an A, but there's someone who could see the capacity in you to do a 15 or a 20. And I think until somebody else sees that in you and you realize that they see this potential you've never paid attention to in yourself, you don't even have access to that. And for me, Mr. Matz saw a bigger version of me inside me that I had never seen before. And I've never been able to go back. I've never been able to go back and just coast. I have coasted, but I've been aware that I'm making a choice to just do the minimum. And I guess Mr. Matz wasn't an easy teacher to be around. You, you couldn't just do the minimum. You just couldn't do, go through the motions. But I think the way I lead today owes more to that one teacher, Mr. Matz, than anyone else I had as a teacher at school or at university. I think one of the things that drives me nuts is when an employee comes back to me and says, but Connor, I did what you asked. I said, I didn't hire you to do what I asked. I hired you to be better than me. I hired you to do what you know able to do. I hired you to stop and think about what's potential here what's important here, what they're looking for, you know, don't just do what I asked, then I don't need you. Hmm. Uh, and I, I think you know, this quite going back to this question of, do you have to be nasty? I don't think you have to be nasty. Do you have to be challenging? Do you have to be hard on people? Do you have to push them to give more than they would without you? Absolutely. I think to be a great leader, when you're present, people give more. And a really great leader, when you're present, people give more. And over time, you start to put that value system into them such that you don't even need to be present, that there's a bit of you that through osmosis, through your, your presence, through your way of asking, starts to rub off on the people around you. And I suspect the Collison brothers, what they've discovered is, you know, I think one thing is there's two. And there's sometimes a magic in two. You know, one person can go mad easily alone. I don't know who can tell Elon when he steps over the line. But I know that my brothers can call me an idiot at any moment. Doesn't matter whether I'm a huge success or a failure. They can look me in the eyes and say, you're being an idiot. And I don't know whether Elon has someone in his life who's able to look him in the eyes and say, dude, <laughs> you're being an idiot. It seems Stop like, it. It, judging by the photos from the Met, gala the other night it might be his mother um when you were running uh, taxijet probably the company you're best associated with did you ever have to put a rocket up anybody um well yes i think uh, 
And how would that go? I mean, what was because you, you we're having a chat now and you you appear very measured and civilized. <laughs> but, but how would, you know, the Conor Neal of, of TaxiJet who needed to get something done, who was facing an impossible deadline, but was going to achieve it anyway? How would that how would that play its course? So I think, you know, the, the person I am now is definitely a result of dumb mistakes 10, 15, 20 years ago. And TaxiJet, for, for one, I think I was far too invested financially, personally, in the success or failure of that company. And you, in a way, who I was as a person was completely passed over to the, the monthly revenue and the sense of growth of the company. And that was a very unhealthy mode of, of living. I think what I try to do now is really separate me as a good human being from whether Vistage as a company is growing, is shrinking. And it's a very difficult thing to do. It's, it's very easy as an entrepreneur to basically just outsource your sense of identity to the success of the business that you're running. Uh, and, you know, I don't think I fully achieved it. For me, COVID was really difficult because it really slowed down the business that I was running. It, it really stopped growth. And March 2020, just at the time that the people around me needed inspiration, needed motivation, needed someone who could listen to them and help them make sense of what they could do, I was struggling because I was too connected. My self-esteem was too connected with whether revenue is growing or not. So I, I think I work very hard to keep a really good separation between whether I think I'm a success and how well the business is going. But I really struggle with it. I think you know, one of the real helps, I have a six-year-old daughter. I have a 15-year-old daughter and a six-year-old daughter. My six-year-old six daughter does not care whether revenue grew, whether revenue shrank, whether I sold anything or not. Uh, and I think that is a huge helper in bringing my feet down to the ground. And it, you know, last month with Vistage, we had the opportunity to hear from Indira Nui, the chairman and CEO of PepsiCo. And one of the stories that I think she's famous for was the day she was promoted to CEO and chairman of PepsiCo globally. She you know, was there at the office for a day. And she came back home. And when she arrived home you know, with, with a giant head of having achieved this success, she, she entered her house in the US. And her mother, as soon as she came in, her mother said, there's no milk in the fridge. Could you go out and get some milk? So the, the chairman and CEO of PepsiCo, probably chauffeured back home from her corner office, arrives at her home and is told to go and buy milk. And it woke her up. And, you know, it was not an easy thing that day, but she realized her mom did it on purpose. That at, in her home, she's not the chairman and CEO of PepsiCo. She's a mother. She's a wife. She's a daughter. And, you know, we, we live in a time. I remember I had a meeting in Madrid last week 
And there was three of us talking. And I, I said, I have a friend who, uh, you know, two years ago sold her business for over 700 million. And the faces of everyone, oh, wow, what a success. And you don't know that. Like, what if she, what if she started with a 2 billion inheritance from her grandparents? What if she has no relationship with her husband and has a completely broken relationship with her kids? You don't know that, but we live in a society that we so decide that corporate success is the measure. It's a very interesting point, and and that's actually probably a good one for for a different podcast, Connor. I often do worry. I have one or two, um, and only one or two, very successful and very wealthy. Sorry, very wealthy to take follow on from your point, uh, friends, and they've made really genuinely big sacrifices in their personal lives to do it. And I'm actually not sure, like they're hundred times wealthier than I am, but I'm not sure it was worth it. You know, I hope they're not listening, by the way. Um, but that's an interesting uh, other podcast. Connor, I could talk to you all day about this stuff. You're, you're very, very interesting perspective. I hope you'll come back on to the podcast. But for now, thank you very much for joining the Big Tech Show today. And from me, Adrian Weckler, tech editor of The Irish and Sunday Independent. That is all we have time for. So I hope you've enjoyed listening and we'll talk to you the same time next week. Bye bye. Thank you.